0: Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, the U.S. government is speaking out against human rights abuses in Cameroon's Anglophone region. Does Washington have a plan? China has been playing hardball with Kenya over trade and debt issues. Will this have a chilling effect across the continent? Plus, we talk about the U.S.-China trade war and its consequences for sub-Saharan Africa. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa.
1: There are a number of gestures the Cameron government could do immediately which would start to diffuse the problem, but at the end of the day, it's going to require open dialogue, uh, no conditions dialogue to get to the heart of the problems. In March,
0: U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Tibor Nagy visited Cameroon. He indicated that he believed it was time for more international engagement to address the separatist violence in the country's Anglophone region. Exasperated, he said, I just don't understand why this crisis keeps going on and on and on. Joining me today to discuss the international community's response to the crisis in Cameroon is Julius Agbar. He is a professor at the Vanguard University of Southern California, Bill Reich, who is at CSIS, and Kat Chang, who is also at CSIS. Julius, what's been happening in the Anglophone part of Cameroon, and why is it attracting so much international attention?
2: What's today referred to as the Anglophone crisis it's a struggle to restore the independence of former British Southern Cameroons. For close to eight years, during 1953 to 1961, the former British Southern Cameroons were self-governed, although not an independent nation paid the United Nations status. So against this backdrop, it would be totally wrong to attribute the root causes of the conflict to the, to a problem of linguistic marginalization much less to a problem of bad governance, as a Western narrative seems to suggest.
0: This is a very emotional issue. Lots of different perspectives on on the drivers, but uh, it happens to be unfolding in a country where the U.S. has a number of strategic interests. Kat, can you talk a little bit about the U.S. interest in Cameroon?
3: I would say that um, U.S. interests in Cameroon are highly security-centric, and they have been. Obama treated BIA as a key ally um, in counterterrorism efforts uh, to counter Boko Haram since the group became more active um, in 2013 along Cameroon's northern border. AFRICOM has a base in Garoua. It equips and trains the regional uh, multinational joint task force uh, that fights Boko Haram and now ISIS West Africa in the Lake Chad Basin area. And notably, actually, B.S. forces are recognized as some of the most reliable amongst that force. So they have been a key counterterrorism ally in that region.
0: So Ambassador Naj's statement, Kat, where he called for more engagement, he called for a global forum. It's not the first time the U.S. has made its views known about uh, the problems in Anglophone Cameroon. Ambassador Peter Barlarin wrote. Um, Provided a public readout of his own conversation with President Bia, where he talked about these problems, and then just a couple of weeks ago, the United States put some sanctions on military support. Ambassador Naja's intervention is is part of a larger engagement, but I do think it's significant. Julius Cat, what do we think the government may respond to this call for a global forum or or the separatists? Does he mean? That he would like the UN to engage, that he that the United States is gonna step up. It's it's a step forward but it's still ambiguous.
3: I mean the EU, the UN both made statements. I know the Bia's government flashed out and said the U.S. should stay out of their affairs. That's not that surprising. But yeah, I think that it just remains to be seen. I'm interested in what the French will actually be doing as well.
0: That's a good point. Julius, do you think that this is a signal of a more serious engagement by the United States?
2: I can agree with Ambassador, uh, with the U.S. ambassador, Thibault, uh, that the solution to the present Anglophone conflict must be found in a global forum with neutral international mediators, probably like the United States, uh, I'm sorry, though I'm a Pan-Africanist, I think the scope of the present Anglophone conflict is beyond the level of mediation by the African Union.
0: Thank you, Joyce. Well, I think this is something that we should keep our eyes on and see how the diplomatic response to the crisis develops. I want to change our focus to the relationship between Kenya in China.
2: Some very, very, very disturbing news coming out of Kenya. We're finally seeing the true colors of China.
0: There's been a number of developments recently uh, that I think merit our attention. First there was this war of words late last year over tilapia the kenyan government uh claimed that they were going to curb tilapia imports from china and that prompted the chinese ambassador to say that his government was going to withdraw funding for the next phase of the standard gauge railway Um, it seems like both sides blinked Uh, the chinese walked away from that threat and the kenyan government has now decided that they are going to let the the imports still come on, Uh, but that's one issue that I wanna talk about. The second one in this Kenyan relationship is that journalists, Kenyan journalists have uncovered uh, that there was a clause that suggested that if the Kenyans cannot pay back um, for the standard gauge railway, that the Mombasa port would move into Chinese hands. Now, this is an alleged clause and both the government of Kenya and the government of China have denied it, But I think both of these stories really exemplify the fears around the China-Africa relationship, which gets a lot of attention here in the United States. Um, Beijing using its economic sway to reverse trade decisions, uh, leveraging its investments to seize national assets. Bill, maybe I can start with you on the first story. All's fair in love and war and trade. I mean, how remarkable or unremarkable is it for China to, to, to sort of make these sort of threats?
1: Well, all's fair in fish, apparently. <laughs> and I had to look this one up. Tilapia is not front page news in, in <laughs> Washington. It is front page news in Nairobi. As near as I can tell, this is fairly blatant act of protectionism on the part of the Kenyan government. Uh, the president indicated he wants to help the home the home guys and promote uh, domestic fish. Uh, the Chinese were offended, uh, as they probably should be. It's a violation of of simply to ban things is a violation of WTO rules. Uh, in a world where of law and order where rules were respected, uh, China would have taken them to the WTO there would have been litigation and eventually a resolution. I think China chose uh, to throw its weight around uh, and and make threats. Uh, was it bullying? Yes uh, did it work? Uh, apparently uh, there turns out to have been a supply crisis and they were short of fish uh, which says something about the Kenyan marketplace but also about the you know, the need not to mess with the market. It looks like both sides have backed off on a necessity. This is not unusual for the Chinese. I've never negotiated with people that have a clearer sense of what's good for them. Uh, and are, I never negotiate with people that are more focused on getting what's good for them. And when somebody comes along and says, we're going to take something away, they usually react uh, and they usually engage in sort of a tit-for-tat process you know if, if they will calibrate what they do to respond to whatever it is you've done to them. This is a case though where the Kenyans started it. Can't blame the Chinese for the whole thing.
0: Well first of all that's very helpful and second of all I'm thrilled that now you're an expert on, on Kenya's fish trade with China.
1: Tilapia is a big deal. Actually the interesting thing that, that came up reading about it were, were essentially deficiencies in the Kenyan uh, market and supply system that make it hard to get domestic fish to the marketplace. And it is actually easier and in some respects cheaper to import from China than it is to move fish internally in the country, which says a lot about their infrastructure.
0: Uh, Let me turn to the second story about Mombasa port. This is the scenario that uh, many observers really do fear. And assuming this is true, um, I guess the question is, would China actually seize the port and uh, what does that mean for the 40-something ports that uh, we here at CSIS have looked at now and hope to publish um, a product on uh, in the coming weeks? Kat, what do you what do you think? Uh, Trying to be a little sly, our, right? Yeah, to, exactly. To, to, to but this project, people. this
3: monster project that we're working on with our fabulous intern, Amelia, where we've essentially tracked all the ports that Chinese entities have either funded, built, or operated um, across sub-Saharan Africa— um, and in terms of the Momba support, I guess it really does encapsulate all the biggest fears. Since China operates from a position of strength from the get-go, they could essentially strong-arm governments into bad deals, coupled with corruption on both sides. This could go on with a you know, relatively unknown. They baked this into a completely different deal. Like, even from a research perspective, we don't know what we don't know, right? And like, even as we're doing this project, it's really hard to figure out um, exactly where to look and what is strategic and what isn't. And in terms of the Momba support, Going to your question of would they grab the port, it is strategically important, right? It's, you know, it's critical to the region's economic health and it's its largest port. Um, So, as seen in Sri Lanka, when they do have the opportunity to go after something, that's a big win they have. Um, On the other hand, I think China's really good at playing the long game. I mean, that would also cause a lot of alarm and potentially keep them from pursuing more deals along the way.
0: The fact that if this clause does exist, that no one was aware of it, not at least the Kenyan people, is a real problem. And that's, I think, almost as important as looking at what the concessional terms are, but actually making sure these contracts are available. And I think you're, you're right that, yes, Mombasa is, is strategic, but we're already seeing the Chinese trying to figure out how to counter the narrative of debt traps. And they are going to be, have to be you know very careful if they ever got to the point where this clause could come into effect Julius, let me turn back to you. do you think that this um, story or could have a chilling effect in terms of relationships between China and its African partners?
2: For those countries that depend significantly on Chinese aid and, and assistance definitely they could not they don't have much leverage uh, you know and will, will get bullied around but uh, those countries like South Africa uh, and to some extent Rwanda, and Ghana, who are able to, uh, you know, um, uh, who have diversified their 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 borrowing or uh, uh, made their economies resilient to foreign uh, aid, have much leverage to be able to respond appropriately.
0: Well, at the minimum, I think that if this clause does prove to be true, is that I think that we would see... Uh, more scrutiny by African governments and African publics about some of these deals. And it brings me to a point that uh, poor Cat has to hear me say all the time. But what's remarkable about this story is not just the potential that this, this national asset could be seized, but it was that African journalists, Kenyan journalists, were the ones that exposed it. You know, not the U.S. government, not the Europeans. It's really important that the tools of a democracy, the Press, the legislative branch, judiciary branch are brought into this conversation. They're the ones that are going to be the most likely to uncover malfeasance and they're the ones that are going to speak for the, uh, the Kenyan or the African people. And it's and I think it's an important investment as we think about this relationship and as the. US government wants to focus on this great power competition framework.. It's a great transition because I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the U.S.-China trade war and its effects on Africa. We're about to publish a new brief that talks about the effects on sub-Saharan Africa. Kat not only is a research assistant here and a co-producer of this incredible podcast, uh, but she had the pen uh, for this topic. And Before I ask Kat to preview some of the, the main conclusions, Bill, can you give us a little bit of what has happened between the U.S. and China?
1: Well, it's been building up for a long time. President Trump has been taking a much more aggressive posture uh, to the problems than his predecessors did. But they're the same problems, which is essentially a range of, of Chinese non-market activities that uh, subsidize and, and favor uh, their own producers at the expense of uh, foreigners, both in China and also in, in, in third market competition where the, their government gives their guys uh, an edge Uh, And an important uh, subtext of that is technology theft, uh, mostly from here and other technology-leading countries, and also forced technology transfer. So the Chinese practice is to tell companies that if you want to do business in China, you have to have a joint venture. You have to have a Chinese partner, and the partner will then demand technology transfer as a condition of the partnership. The government then can say, we have clean hands. We didn't force it, Uh, but the partner has. And, of course, the partner is often a state-owned enterprise or uh, someone that's uh, influenced by the state. This president has uh, attempted to bring the China bring China to the table by tariffs and and uh, fairly aggressive trade actions. That's produced a negotiation. The betting is 50-50 on, on, on how it ends. Uh, they are designing a package that will consist of three parts. Part one is the Chinese commit to buying a whole bunch of stuff. They may be committing to buy more stuff than we actually make, Uh, And so then there will be a question if we can possibly sell them all the stuff they've promised to buy. Uh, Part two will be the extent to which they're willing to commit to solve the problems I just described. They will agree to solve some of them uh, in the IP area probably and in the technology theft area and the forced technology transfer area. Uh, Getting rid of subsidies, getting rid of state-owned companies, they're not going to do that. Xi Jinping is focused on more control rather than less control. Then the third part is enforcement. Ambassador Lighthizer really is skeptical, so he wants a a mechanism whereby basically we get to decide later on whether they've complied, and if we decide on our own that they haven't, we get to act unilaterally against them, uh, and they don't get to do anything about it. Even if we agree on all that stuff, what happens to the existing tariffs that Trump has put into place? The Chinese say they have to go away. Trump keeps saying we need to keep them to make sure that you're honoring the deal. That's what's up in the air.
0: I want to focus on the tariffs because I don't think any policymaker thought that this would have an effect on Africa, but it has. And Kat did a lot of research on this topic. So, Kat, how did Africa become an innocent bystander in this trade war?
3: Yeah, I think most of the more serious impacts are projections at this point about what, you know, what could happen if the trade war were to continue. Um, in the short term, it's mostly about the uncertainty and the anxiety around tariffs that has caused investors to essentially pull out and stock markets and currencies to fluctuate. Um, but in terms of projections, um, there's two there's two phenomenon. And it's actually that tariffs are projected to add to a number of factors that um, – that are slowing global growth and slowing Chinese production, um, but I'll emphasize that they're just adding to these factors. These are actually you know, issues that are already occurring to a certain extent. African economies that rely primarily on exports of industrial materials um, may see revenues fall as the econ- if the economy slows. Um, and then this also puts African economies that depend heavily um, on exports to China for, um, for revenues at risk. And notably, those categories actually overlap.
0: And the IMF, this is a projection again, but the IMF is actually...
3: Yeah, they've actually calculated that a 1.5% cumulative drop in African GDP growth by 2021 could be connected to the trade trade war specifically.
1: That's really interesting, though. I I didn't know that. But go on. See, if Bill thinks it's the most interesting part, I'm with him.
3: I, I actually thought the impact that these indirect economic effects were having... On the political dynamics on the continent were more interesting.
0: Okay, tell us about those.
3: I mean, essentially, China has used this trade war narrative to frame the U.S. as working against the interests of African nations. They're also using it to bolstering their own image as, you know, this benevolent, you know, friend of developing nations that's suffering alongside them. Um, African governments also, on their own, have actually called out protectionism. Um, And some leaders have even stood in solidarity with China um, to oppose protectionism. And we actually, we all know who they're talking about as they do that. Um, And so when you place that in the context of the U.S.'s broader goals, which is to essentially increase trade investment and counter-China, the trade war actually seems really counterproductive in the African region.
1: Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about it in the African context. It's different there than I think Uh, we've looked mostly at the effect in in the rest of Asia. The other thing that the tariffs are doing is to produce uh, alteration of supply chains uh, because uh, trade now is supply chains and countries want to have supply chains that are inside trade beneficial zones, not outside. So you're gonna see, I think over time, uh, Chinese companies moving primarily to Vietnam. The tariffs increase the incentive uh, to uh, to invest out, uh, outward because that way you don't have to pay the tariff if your product's coming from Vietnam as opposed to if it's coming from China. So there are positive benefits there as well as negative ones. In Africa, I think you primarily only see the negative ones because their involvement in supply chains is less. Is yeah. Less and
3: I think there were hopes that sub-Saharan Africa would gain, but that's mostly reserved to South Africa because it does have more developed manufacturing sectors.
1: The United States, if it's smart and probably won't be, can mitigate some of this by pursuing a more aggressive uh, trade policy with Africa to try to specifically counter what the Chinese are doing. Uh, They've talked about that uh, in the context of of free trade agreements with individual countries. It'll be hard for them to do that because the likely likely targets are all part of various customs unions, and you can't really negotiate independently if you're part of some sort of uh, existing regional trade Trade uh, Agreement inside Africa. I mean, if the administration were not so focused strictly on bilateral relationships, uh, they could do a lot more, and they could go to ECOWAS or some of these other yeah, uh, well, arrangements and do something collectively with them.
0: In our our piece, as one of our recommendations, the Continental Free Trade Agreement is now in in late March, one ratification away from coming into effect. So, you know, it is a remarkable development, but. Um, because the administration's focused on bilateral agreements, there hasn't been as much of a push to support that effort. I want to make sure I bring Julius back into the conversation because there are all these structural economic uh, weaknesses in Africa. They are particularly, you know, vulnerable. How do you think about the region's exposure uh, to this sort of global uh, trade wars?
2: Right. So as Kat said uh Africa mainly would suffer from uh, their export markets uh, becoming increasingly squeezed. Uh, And the way they can respond to that, the number one is export diversification. More African countries are more and more called to diversify their export menus from uh, traditional exports like oil to non-oil exports. Number two, uh, they can focus on policies that will drive down costs because cost of production are too high in Africa, partly related to the lack of infrastructure and the fact that uh, countries are too small and too far away from one another. By expanding the sizes of the economies through integration, they could work to drive down costs, trade more amongst themselves to insulate themselves from the effects of uh, uh, the foreign markets.
0: Well, and I think those are imperative because I I have to admit that I didn't realize, Bill, that that the tariffs may not even be on the table. So I was just going to initially suggest that these are things that Africa needs to do for itself, not only to strengthen its economies, to prepare in case uh, of another trade war w- between whomever, but uh, we may not. They may have a deal, and the tra- the tariffs may still be hanging out, right?
1: Right. That's what that's what the president says. Um, my gut feeling based on his performance so far is that if that is the sole outstanding issue at the end, it's an otherwise acceptable agreement, and the two presidents meet, I think Trump folds. Uh, on the $200 billion, what he said today very clearly was the original $50 billion will remain, and that's regarded not as part of leverage in this negotiation.
0: Well, Kat, let me give you the final word. Uh, Julius put some... Uh, key recommendations for African countries on the table. Bill has talked about um, continental free trade agreement and other sort of regional uh, agreements, but are there other things that you think are imperative for the continent to really work on in a like this?
3: I mean, I think Julia's pointed out the main points, right? Diversification, industrialization, integration, those are the key issues that African countries have been working on for a very long time now. Outside investors are realizing more and more that, you know, the African consumer base is a formidable opportunity. Um, And from that, there's been more investment in local manufacturing to feed feed local need. Um, And doing that actually bypasses some of the infrastructure gaps um, and helps develop crucial links in supply chains and thereby decreasing dependency on imports. If African governments can help decrease the barriers to setting up those manufacturing bases can actually help.
0: Great. Well... We plugged two products that are going to come out of CSIS Africa program, both uh, this paper on the trade war and its effects on Africa and a subsequent paper on ports. So please look out for that. Thanks to Julius, Bill, and Kat for joining us today. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org/Africa. Thanks.